Dear Lord, we thank you for your presence with us here. Thank you that you can speak to us through your word. Lord, I pray that you'd come by your spirit, you'd help me to speak, that you'd give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I wonder how many of us here this evening are impressed by money. I wonder how many of us think, wow, when we read about the latest pop star's mega mansion, or the Russian billionaire's yacht, or the footballer worth £100 million, or the internet entrepreneurs who are almost minting money, Or maybe, perhaps, you secretly take pride in knowing one or two very wealthy people. Are you impressed by money? It's not hard to be sometimes. Or are you impressed by celebrities? The quirky personality of a Russell Brand, for example, or whoever it may be. Or fascinated by the lives of the rich and famous glamorised in the magazines. Or do you tune into reality TV shows and become a a voyeur into the antics of the so-called famous or celebrities. Or maybe you champion Christian celebrities. Billy Graham, Bill Hybels, Bill Johnson. Gosh, there's a lot of Bills, aren't there? Maybe I should change my name to Billy Dolphin. (laughs) No, seriously, I think that if we're honest... In our society today, most people are impressed by either wealth or celebrity or both. And I know that I have to be quite intentional to keep them in their proper perspective as well. It's easy to look at others and put our faith more in them than in God. In Corinth, when Paul wrote this letter around 54, 55 AD... Things were a little bit different, but actually not so different. The Apostle Paul arrived in Corinth in about 51 AD, just just some 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. At which time there was no Christian church at all. And after preaching in the Jewish synagogue for a while and being thrown out, because they didn't like what he was teaching, he went next door and started a church, the first church in Corinth. And that was quite successful. And when he left Corinth a few years later to move on with his missionary work, he left a thriving church and a man called Apollos in charge of it. Now, Apollos was a good man. But after some time, it became clear from a letter which Paul received from the Corinthian church, which is mentioned in chapter 7, verse 1, and from reports that he heard from the household of Chloe, mentioned in chapter 1, verse 11, that arguments had broken out in the church over personalities, over style. And so he writes this letter in part, we know, to try and settle things down. To understand the background to, the, to this uh, problem, it's important to appreciate the culture in Paul's day in Corinth. Corinth was a Greek city under Roman rule. And to Greeks, the most important thing in life wasn't money, it wasn't celebrity, it was Wisdom. It was knowledge and wisdom. The Greek philosophers were famous. And so 
if you were wise and eloquent and you could win a good debate, then you were the rock star of the day in Greece. The person to revere and put on a pedestal. Paul says in verse 22, Jews look for miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Wisdom was what Greek society worshipped and held as the highest attribute in a human being. In our society today, of course, it's not really the same as that. I think it's probably a close-run thing between whether wealth or celebrity gets the top spot in our culture. But since few of us are celebrities, the real number one god in our society is money. Because we can all dream about that. We could even flirt with the very unlikely idea of winning the lottery. But if we're already wealthy, we also tend to cling on to it and trust in it much more than we tend to trust in God. But in these few verses, 26 to 31, Paul appeals to the Christians in Corinth to get the right perspective on what's important. And as he does this, I think we can draw at least three messages for us today out of what he says here. And there's kind of one message to those who are well off or consider themselves well off or well set up or whatever it is. There's a message to those who feel perhaps that they aren't succeeding. And then there's another message to everyone. First, though, I'd like to ask you to think back to that time in your life when you first came to know God, when you first became, had had a, let's say, an adult faith as, as a Christian. And I want you to think back to the kind of life you were leading just before that happened. What kind of circumstances you were in at the time you first felt the call of God on your life? That's what Paul is sort of telling them to do in verse 26. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. In other words, before you came to the point where you decided to follow Jesus Christ. What kind of person were you? And don't worry if you're one of those who would say, well, I mean, I I can't really say that because I never remember a time when I wasn't a Christian. Because for some people, that's the truth. For me, I was someone who used to believe that my wealth, my intelligence, my own strength, my own happiness, all these things were what mattered most in life. And it was only when I just came to the point of realising that perhaps there was something more that God broke in. So I wonder, where were you? What were you doing? What were you like when God (coughs) broke in? And then Paul goes on to say that not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. Remember, he's talking to Christians. I had to smile when I read this because... I used to have resp- when I used to have responsibility for the Alpha course at Greyfriars, it was a very large Alpha course. We used to have these big parties we put on to launch the course. They were very successful. We used to get a lot of people along. And uh, as a result, a lot of people came on the course. But one of the things that we used to do was to try and get somebody who was well-known, somebody who was famous, to come and speak on that evening so that it would attract people to, to come and listen. 
So we had Jonathan Aitken one year, the disgraced cabinet minister. Um, we had uh, 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 Suzanne Manning, who, uh, who, who did very well on Pop Idol, a Reading girl who did very well on Pop Idol. Um, and uh, we had Linvoy Primus, an ex-Reading uh, football player, when we did an alpha launch at the football stadium. Um, and, but the simple truth of the matter was that most years we couldn't find anybody well-known who was a Christian to come and speak. Because there don't seem to be that many. And it seems to be exactly the same in first century Corinth. It was like a light bulb coming on, really. I thought, oh, yeah, Paul's not, he's, that's what he's saying. He says, verse 27, he says, God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the lowly and despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. In other words, God chose the unlikely so that his power will be revealed and no one can claim it for themselves. So here's a very controversial message to people who feel well off, sorted, have everything going for them. If if you're financially, materially, relationally and socially well off, the message is, from God's point of view, you are not an obvious choice to be a Christian. That's a thought, isn't it? Paul says, in effect, not many of you were the kinds of people who society considers you should aspire to be. Leon Morris, in his commentary on this passage, says that God chose to communicate his love to a world not in a way which would have won over the clever people, the intelligentsia, the people who looked up to by society. Instead, he chooses those who are not obviously outstanding and transforms them to bring him glory, which in turn displays his power. And isn't that just God's character right through the Bible? So many Old Testament characters who God used mightily had very inauspicious beginnings. Moses the murderer, Jacob the deceiver, Rahab the prostitute, David the adulterer and murderer, and so it goes on and on and on. And when God sent his saviour, He chose to come as a newborn baby in a lowly stable. His disciples were fishermen or hated tax collectors or outlawed zealots. He washed their feet. And Jesus died the most despised death of all, crucifixion on a cross where he was mocked and jeered. Matthew Henry's commentary on this passage notes that the Greeks laughed at the story of a crucified saviour. I I felt quite hurt when I read that, when I saw that written down. But the Greeks, when people were trying to tell the gospel, many of the Greeks just laughed at the idea of a crucified saviour. It just, it was a non sequitur. It didn't add up. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now, of course, there were clever people and well-to-do people and charismatic people in the congregation in the church in Corinth, just as there are in churches today. After all, Paul does say, not many of you. He doesn't say none of you. And so you may be thinking, well, where does that leave me if, I'm a kind of, if I feel like I'm kind of better off than most? Can't God use me? Can't I be a, a follower of Jesus? And of course, the answer is yes, You can, but you better be careful that you're not putting your trust 
in the things that make you well off rather than in Jesus. You may need, in fact, to get rid of some of those things that are preventing you having a close walk with God. That's why three gospel writers tell the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, who spots where his trust really is, says to him, go and sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. And the man sadly turns around and walks away from Jesus. Now, it may not be financial security which is getting in the way of you or me being used by God. But it might be pride, it might be self-image, it might be unforgiveness or something else. But we need to be released of those things. But I'm sure there are perhaps more of us who probably don't consider ourselves to be in that category, the well-off, either in a worldly or perhaps even a spiritual sense. Some of us here tonight might feel stripped, bare, some in low-paid jobs, some without work, some scraping by on a pension, some grieving lost loved ones, some reeling from the breakup of a relationship, some on the fringe, some feeling left out, some perhaps clinging to a thin thread of faith, some wondering whether they will ever hear from God. And if that's you, then there's a message for you too. And actually it's the same message as the one to the, to the well-off. God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the lowly and despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. In other words, God chose the unlikely so that his power will be revealed and no one can claim it for themselves. God does not go round looking for sorted, socially acceptable, well-off, well-known, well-respected people for him to love and exhibit his glory through. Although he does occasionally. What we can draw from what Paul says is that if you don't feel that you are one of what society would call the beautiful, attractive, eloquent, well-dressed, desirable, popular people, then you are just the kind of person God chooses and uses and loves to use to build his kingdom here on earth. That's good news, isn't it? It's very good news. You are just the kind of person that God is looking for and through whom he wants to display his glory. Why did God do this? Why didn't he choose all the rich and famous and intelligent and wise people to become Christians so that everyone else would follow? Well, it's because, Paul writes to us in verse 29, it's because no one, so that no one may boast before him. In other words, if it was the clever, the intelligent, the popular who proclaimed the gospel we might conclude that the power came from their gifts rather than from God. And of course, the glory must go to God. Which leads us to the third message we can take away, which is for everyone. Which is that the incredible state of grace in which we live is 100% down to God's choice and has absolutely nothing to do with our own worthiness. 
Verse 30 tells us that it's because of him, God in other words, that we are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus, um, verse 30 goes on to say, has become the wisdom of God. Through our faith in him, Paul tells us, we receive his righteousness, which means being in a right relationship with God, his holiness, which means moral cleansing, if you like, or sanctification, to use a theological word, and redemption, which means that he sets us free from the slavery of sin. And in this passage, there's a wonderful interplay of cause and effect. You see, it's because of Jesus and what he's done that our sins are forgiven and our relationship with God is restored, but it's God's choice that we are saved by Christ Jesus. It's because of God, Paul says, that we are in Christ Jesus. It's not by our own wisdom. However, that's not the whole story. Because although it's God's choice to offer us salvation, we also have a part to play. He has given us free will to accept or reject this offer. But what I don't want to do is to leave you today thinking that, well, if it's God's choice, God's choice then it doesn't make any difference what I do Because that's not the gospel. Mike Riches in his book Living Free says, The great gift of salvation is God's plan and work. It's dependent on him and can only be accomplished by him. We do not have the capacity to be as righteous as God is righteous, but we do have the responsibility in the transaction of being saved. And this is clear in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. He says, to those who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So God decides, God chooses who has the right to become children of God. But we have to be open to receive him and believe and trust in him. But it's a work of God to which we respond, not something we work up ourselves. And so now let's finish on the last verse, verse 31. Because we can't boast ourselves, Paul writes, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. There are no, there are no first class and second class Christians. None of us can boast. We're all sinners redeemed by God's grace. None of us should think ourselves better than the next person. And none of us should put ourselves on a pedestal. We're all one in Christ. We should only boast in the Lord. I was graphically reminded of how dependent we are on God. Um, Quite a few years ago now, Kirsty and I had the privilege of a week's holiday in Rome. And one morning we caught a bus to the northeast part of the city to see the catacombs of Priscilla. And what used to happen was that as part of the persecution of early Christians under various Roman emperors, Christians were not allowed to be buried within the city walls of Rome. And so the Christians took the bodies of their brothers and sisters outside the city walls and buried them in deep underground tunnels um, called catacombs. And Priscilla happened to be the wife of a nobleman who was put to death as part of the persecution of Christians under the emperor Domitian. And Priscilla allowed the Christian community to dig these catacombs under their house. And they grew, it's almost unbelievable, but they grew to incorporate 45,000 tombs in 17 kilometres of tunnels 
which included the tombs of many Christian martyrs. And we walked along these tunnels, and, and, the, and the, the, there were these shelves just stacked ten high on which the bodies had been laid. Um, and, and, and also, um, we saw underground these chapels that had been carved um, out of the rock, where the early Christians had painted pictures, depicting uh, a sort of pictures of salvation, but also had drawn pictures of themselves um, in worship, in attitudes of, of worship, standing with their hands held up, opened out, praising God. Now, persecution hadn't come to Corinth at the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians. But as we walked down those catacombs, it graphically brought home to me how trivial are many of the things that we hold so tightly when we're faced, when we see other people faced with real suffering. The people that Paul wrote to in Corinth had split over worldly things, personality differences, intellectual competitiveness, status, wealth. And Paul writes to tell them that it's God's work that they've been saved, by which they've been saved and that no one had anything to boast about. So may those of us who consider ourselves well-off and sorted come to understand that all we have, including our salvation, comes 100% from God and be prepared to let go of those things which are of no heavenly value whatsoever. And may those of us who feel knocked down, unworthy, not good enough, or left out, come to realise that we are just the kind of people God chooses to display his love through and his grace and his power. Although we must have faith in Jesus, Jesus also has faith in us. And may we all understand afresh, or even for the first time, just how much God loves us and has forgiven us by choosing us and sending his son Jesus to die for us so that we may become children of God and live forever in his love here on earth and in heaven when finally, like those Christian martyrs in the catacombs, we go to join them and we return to God. Amen.